Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there, you are listening to episode 242 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali, and you're listening to our porn series. Today, I'm very, very excited because I'm recording this intro right before I'm heading to airport to go to Africa with my husband. My husband made this promise to me, I would say more than 10 years ago, that he will climb Mount Everest with me for my big birthday. I don't think then he thought we would be together now. Otherwise, I don't think he would make that promise. He's someone that he doesn't, he's not into adventure and kind of climbing things is not his thing. Anyhow, as we got closer to the date, he changed his mind. And after the heated negotiation, we agreed to Kilimanjaro instead. I'm very scared because we chose the quickest route to the peak since we didn't have enough vacation date. And I heard the changes in elevation is really, really tough. I heard some horror stories about how sick people got climbing up to the peak quickly. Anyhow, if you're listening to this episode, please head over my Instagram account, send me some encouragement, please pray for me, I would really need it right about now. Today we're going to talk about revenge porn, we're going to talk about psychology behind revenge porn, how can we protect ourselves, and what can we do if we discover our images, videos are leaked. Our guest today is Dr. Kate Balistrieri. I really enjoy Dr. Kate's content. She's a wealth of great information. She has a PsyD degree and she has a CSAT supervisor certification. She's a licensed psychologist in clinical and forensic in California, Florida, and Illinois. As I mentioned, she's a certified sex therapist, certified sex addiction therapist supervisor, and PAC2 trained couples therapist. She earned her Doctor of Clinical Psychology from Illinois School of Professional Psychology in Chicago and completed her postdoctoral fellowship through the Northwestern University School of Medicine with a concentration in forensic psychology. In over 14 years of clinical experiences, she has conducted clinical and forensic evaluations, provided expert witness testimony in court, and been a treatment provider in clinical, forensic, and correctional settings. You can read her full bio in the show notes. She, she's been guest in a number of talk radio shows, She's been featured in major publication. I encourage you to check out her books and also the content that she puts on the internet. It's amazing. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Kate Balistrieri. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. Kate Balistrieri on our show. Dr. Kate, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be a guest and grateful to be invited. 
I am very excited to have you on. I know just before we started recording, I was sharing with you that how, how much I close I feel toward you, how, how much I feel connection toward <laughs> you. And I can now believe that we haven't met in person yet. No, I know. It's so surreal. We live just a few neighborhoods away from each other, but this pandemic has kept everyone so far apart. So looking forward to this today and maybe having coffee again on the beach someday soon. I would love that. And you <laughs> know how we got to know each other is through social media. And I know you post a lot of good material on your Instagram account. Account, you write a lot of helpful articles and blog posts. And I was, I had a hard time choosing a topic for our conversation because of the depth and breadth of your experience. But I know you have a very interesting background. So you mentioned while back that you were a forensic psychologist. Tell us, how did you get into the realm of sexuality? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always seem like an immediate leap. So psychology in general is a second career for me. I used to be in the employee benefits industry and you know, I just started getting a little bit more soulful and wanting to understand more about what was the catalyst for human behavior, both the most benevolent of human behavior and some of the more egregious or dangerous behaviors that we see. So I decided to go back to school and pursue a degree in psychology. And in my graduate programs, there were a few different paths that we could take. And being a true crime fan my whole life, you know, I've always been really curious about why do people do some of the, the, the most dark and insidious things that we're all capable of doing. So it, it took me down a path of really wanting to explore the forensic side of psychology a little bit more. And for people who don't know what forensic psychology means, it essentially means the intersection of wherever the field of psychology and the field of the legal system intersect. So my initial experience in the field was in various prison systems. And while I was working in the different prison systems, I frequently found myself working on teams where there were a lot more instances of sexual offending behaviors with some of the convicted uh, people that I was working with. So I really focused on working with sex offenders and trying to understand what happens in a person's mind and psyche that would get them to a point of committing that kind of an egregious offense. And it was honestly a tremendous experience. And I learned a lot about human behavior and about sexuality. And that got me a lot more curious to really begin to explore what are some of the other dimensions of sexuality and how do they influence how we are as individuals and of course, in our relationships and culturally as a whole. What a fascinating background. And when I think about people who are working in correctional facilities, you, you like historically, like, of course, it's stereotypical kind of image, but you think this like very buff, like huge man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting to see a, a female like you, like being in that, uh, working on that structure. But I, but I love that the depth and breadth of the experiences that you had. Oh, yeah, it was, it was really, I, I feel so fortunate to have had that experience because it taught me so much. 
Yeah, yeah, I can imagine like learning about kind of all of kind of like a spectrum of human behavior, mm-hmm. because I would imagine in private practice, at least in my practice, we usually see people are in the different aspect of their life. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to have both sides of the experiences. Mm-hmm. So this month, we're talking about porn, this all about all aspect of porn. And so I'm kind of curious to learn more about revenge porn. I know mm. that's something that you wrote about it. And I'm curious to learn more about it. Well, I'm so glad that you're talking about it. This is one area of the conversation of sexual violence that I feel really passionate about helping people understand more deeply because it's happening with far more prevalence than I think most, most of us are aware. So revenge porn, the, the, the other language for it sort of clinically and in a research context is image-based sexual abuse. And I share that because revenge porn is just that. It is a digital form of sexual abuse that's happening pervasively. And what it means is that someone is sharing explicit images of another person without their consent and sometimes without their knowledge. So those images could be photos, they could be videos, it could even be a live cam situation. But what's happening is somebody is being photographed or filmed and those images are being shared with other people without their consent or knowledge. And I think it's one of the worst kind of situation cases, scenarios that comes to many people's mind. I know that uh, that's why many people have reservation about Mm -hmm. sharing their videos and images. And on top of these, like some of these videos are being recorded without Mm -hmm. the person even knowing. And it's just so common. How can we protect ourselves? Because we want to have great experiences, want to be adventurous, but it's, we want to make sure also that we're not, we're protecting ourselves as much as we can. Again, there are situations that there is no way for the victims to know, but for our safety, what are some of the suggestions that you have? Well, a couple of things. We can never fully predict another person's behavior, but to the extent that you develop enough rapport with someone that you can talk about safety precautions. And if you're going to, you know, explore the world of digital erotica with each other, who's going to be the keeper of those images? What do you feel safe with? What happens if you stop talking to each other, stop dating or end the relationship? What happens to the images? Do you make agreements around that? And how do you know you can trust someone's word? I mean, again, we can't predict other people's behavior, but to the extent that You can talk with someone and and really establish kind of a safety plan and an exit strategy if one or both of you decides you want the images to be destroyed. That would maybe be one way to start, you know, thinking about how am I sharing my information when I do give consent for these images to be taken? Another thing to think about is, you know, (laughs) I actually saw this great meme. I can't take credit for this idea. But I saw a great meme online that said we should start putting watermarks on our nudes so that you know when somebody has received it, if it gets leaked, you know who to point to, right? So you might put the person's initials somewhere on the photo so that if it gets out, you know exactly who to go to for for blame. So that's sort of one way. And, and you can even, you know, kind of joke about it with partners like this is, this is how serious it has gotten. And, and maybe joking isn't even the right term, but just to really be clear about your fears. This is how people are having to protect themselves these yes. days. Yes, and our protection and feeling safe is really, mm-hmm. really important. As you mentioned, these are criminal activities. So I don't think that's 
what would most people do? So mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious to hear more about the psychological profile of people who are leaking these images. Do mm-hmm. we have any information about that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Before I jump into that, can I just touch on one thing that you yes. said? So it, it, revenge porn is considered illegal in the majority of states and the kind of crime that it is varies from state to state. So if someone does realize that their rights have been violated and their images have been shared, I would definitely recommend they check out what their state's laws are because there might be some ability to get justice. But back to your question about what compels someone to do this, I think we have to look at a few different motives. More often than not, the the motive is in the name, revenge porn. So this comes about when someone feels rejected or put down or insecure in some way. That's a frequent motive. If, If a person ends a relationship and the other partner was not ready to end the relationship or feels particularly hurt or abandoned, sometimes the anger that they feel in response to that shame or loneliness or sadness can come across in a way that gets weaponized somehow in this sexual medium. So what was once something that was shared um, and intimate now becomes a weapon for injury. So I have these intimate moments of you and I want you to hurt as much as I hurt right now. So let me expose you to the world and show everyone your biggest vulnerabilities, right? Which for most of us includes being nude in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> right. And the ramification of that can be huge. Many yeah. years ago, I had this client that took this like fun videos with her partner when she was like 18 or 19, like barely mm-hmm. legal. Mm-hmm. And then the images was leaked and it became very, very popular. And this person was coming to me in her late twenties and she mm-hmm. completely changed her appearance and she was leaving in this mm-hmm. constant fear of what people recognize me and mm-hmm. people from her community, which was a very conservative community at times recognize her. And what I hear it is common for victims to not report it because people already feel uncomfortable about having these materials out there. So sometimes there are some reservation to report those mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. So being the victim of image-based sexual abuse or revenge porn is akin to being sexually assaulted, uh, just without the physical contact of it. So many survivors of revenge porn will exhibit symptoms of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder if they don't get help or, or find relief soon after the experience of discovery. And reporting it brings with it all the same concerns that reporting other kinds of sexual abuse may come with. There's a tremendous amount of victim blaming and slut shaming that survivors are faced with, and it can be a real deterrent to reporting. Also, you know, every every police precinct is different, so I certainly don't want to paint with a, with a blanket brush here, but there are many precincts that may deprioritize crimes like this because there isn't a physical contact element or risk of imminent physical danger, at least that's visible to them. A lot of people don't don't understand about revenge porn and image-based sexual abuse is that it can come with really extreme consequences that the perpetrator is rarely held accountable for, but the victim shoulders the blame for frequently. 
Absolutely. Because with this client, she was very mindful of what positions even she was accepting in her company Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. she didn't want it to be face of the company. And again, this is like 10 years later. And I don't like we talked about, I don't think there was anything she did was wrong. She was Mm -hmm. having this sexual experiences with her boyfriend and the fact that it it was out there and was viewed so, so many times that just can be very, very scary. I know you were talking about like when people feel hurt, like during breakup, Mm -hmm. that that can be one motivation for people to do such a thing. But of course, most people, when they feel hurt, they wouldn't go to the extent of (laughs) doing something like damaging as much. You know, I I think about people with kind of personality disorder, especially people with narcissistic characteristic kind of features. I know that's one of your specialties. Mm -hmm. Do you see that more in that subpopulation? So certainly people who have um, more acute symptom clusters of personality disorders, we would think that they would be the most likely to engage in this kind of behavior. People with symptoms of borderline personality disorder are, uh, you know, have a higher risk of exhibiting these kinds of behaviors and those with narcissistic symptoms because the, the core underlying fear here is sort of the same. If I'm not Uh, Well, there's abandonment, of course, with people who have a borderline organization. And for narcissists, it's I have to feel special and worthy, right? I have to in order to feel okay. So when we look at the relational wounds that can sometimes happen, and see the shame and the pain and the abandonment and the fear, it makes sense that people who are more susceptible to being wounded in those ways would be the ones who would maybe have a higher likelihood of reacting to them. So I haven't actually seen any data that suggests people with those personality disorders have a higher likelihood, but it makes sense when we look at the symptom presentation. Also, I think one thing that's important to take into consideration is the construct of gender and sometimes how entitlement can play a role in the digital objectification of female partners, which women are often the primary targets of revenge porn. So there's a commodification of the female body that sometimes implicitly male partners can hold on to as, you know, having a right to possess or having a right to have a demand from that person, right, from this body. And when the person does not deliver at no fault of their own, right, they can't assuage the pain that the other person feels because they don't want to be in a relationship with that person. That's not to say they're doing anything to hurt them, but it certainly could feel that way, right? And so when we when we think about the way in which there's an expectation of you should be the salve for my pain, you should be the person to bring me happiness, it's because of you that I don't feel good. When people don't have an emotional vocabulary or a community to support them in healing from that kind of a big pain, they often try to destroy what they believe caused the pain, or in this case, who. And so I think that's where these image-based sexual abuses and assaults become so appealing because sex is one of the most vulnerable places in our lives, regardless of who we are. And if I feel so hurt and vulnerable, and this feels like a way to get you to feel the same kind of pain, it feels like sometimes an even exchange in the mind of the mind of somebody who's really hurting in that way. 
that I appreciate the compassionate view you bring to that. And you're right that in, in the person's perspective, it feels like they're serving justice while right. uh, the consequences are, can be drastic. And you're right mm-hmm. that as you, as you see it in the, as I'm seeing it through the lens of society, that's interesting because I think the ramification, even in this time and age, is going to be significantly more for women to mm-hmm. have their kind of like porn, kind of like non-consensual visual images and porn out there or the material out there versus mm-hmm. a male getting exposed. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting to, to see it that way. And as you were talking about it at the beginning of the, our conversation about having this conversation about who has the ownership of the images, mm-hmm. what's the arrangement, I was thinking even in this time and age that we're communicating things digitally, how much security we have. Like, for example, I, I just recently got a new phone and I deleted <laughs> so many images and previous phones. But as soon as, you know, sometimes when you get a new phone, you get connected to the cloud and all the images I deleted <laughs> was uploaded my phone. And I didn't uh-huh. even know their existence. And I'm sure our many of our digital information is like that. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. care about my photos getting re-uploaded. But like, what if like we, we think we have this illusion of safety, mm-hmm. but whether mm-hmm. we have it or not, that's another question. So is there any safe way that people can kind of like exchange information? Of course, again, I, this is just like what we're talking about based on our experiences, but I'm curious, what are some of the suggestions you have around that? It's a great question. And I don't know that I'm the best person to speak to that because I'm not a tech specialist and I'm sure there are lots of ways to have workarounds and also ways to protect ourselves. But what what I would encourage people to think about is any images that you take, right? Think about where they could be stored. And if it's on a device that has cloud or or other kinds of storage other than on the device itself, where does it go? And who has access to that information maybe are some questions to think about. So for people who want to exchange these kinds of images, or for couples who maybe live together, might you have a separate device that you use and a different memory card, something that doesn't connect and and have lots of exposure to the world. But even that is a bit of a, a false sense of security because there can be situations where partners take all of these precautions and still their images are leaked during moments of conflict in the relationship or because it serves a different emotional need for the person leaking the images. You know, I've worked with many couples who have taken, you know, videos together and they've made images together. And these are couples who are married, couples that have been together for many years, couples that have children even, and they find out some years into the relationship that their partner has had an entirely different email account and has been distributing their images unbeknownst to them. And in some more extreme cases, even acting as if they were their partner and flirting with other people online. So the, the, the risks are high. The rewards are also high. You know, it can be really fun and erotic and exploratory and exciting to exchange images with a partner or to watch back videos that you make together. And so I think the question really comes down to how do you communicate it? 
communicate about it with a partner or whomever you're going to be sharing and exchanging images with? And what kinds of agreements can you make? And then honestly, there's a little bit of a leap of faith that needs to happen. Absolutely. Oh my God, the cases you were talking about was very disturbing. Knowing <laughs> 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 that someone was like using your images to communicate with, with someone else pretending it being you. And again, mm-hmm. our, our, our human, like sexuality, our psyches are complicated. So I, I like one flaw that I have and it's only for me is to think about if I'm taking a picture or video I'm assuming there is a probability of it being getting leaked Mm -hmm. whether it's like my husband getting it for for our personal archive and Mm -hmm. I love him and I trust him but God knows what happens like in future someone can break to our house and get the camera (laughs) exactly exactly you might somebody next door might be able to hack your wi-fi and unbeknownst to you they just happen to see what's on your computer I don't know how all those things work it's above my tech head but I, I take the same assumption right every image that we take could potentially find its way into the hands of someone that we're not ready or don't want to see that image. And it's unfortunate that that's sort of the state of where we are, but that that is just the reality of this digital world. And I think I love that you talked about kind of like advocating for yourself, going mm-hmm. to the justice system, because I feel that the more people see and hear about the cases of people getting some kind of a punishment or some kind of a legal consequences, like that can be discouraging because mm-hmm. again, I, I hear that revenge porn being a crime, but I haven't had enough. I haven't heard about enough cases that I would mm-hmm. think about the consequences and I would imagine that's the case for many people. Yes, it's it's uh, historically it has been very challenging for people to see justice come to fruition, but it is changing. Many states are revamping their laws around revenge porn and they're reconsidering the investigation process and how these cases are handled and they are training officers to think about the cases a little bit differently because when someone's images find themselves online, I shouldn't say find themselves online, when someone puts an image online, right? This is not an accidental situation in most cases. It can lead to grave physical danger for someone. There are a lot of people out there who make the faulty assumption that if your images are out there, that that's an invitation for sexualized interactions. And so there can be instances of stalking that are born of that, violence, people, people's own families or their own partners might turn against them and get violent if they learn that there are images of them online. So this can absolutely have grave physical consequences for people. Well, and I think it's important for parents to talk about, about it with their kids because mm-hmm. I feel the older you get, you get more information about mm-hmm. what would be the consequences of this. I, I kind of reflecting back on when I was teen, this wasn't something that was in my mind. So ki- like teens, they, they tend to be more impulsive and that can have major yeah. consequences for them. It can. In some states, even if a teen sends a picture of themselves, an explicit picture of themselves to another teen, that could be considered production of child pornography, and they may face charges of that. So there are a lot of implications of sending nudes and receiving nudes, especially for people who are not yet 18. Well, Dr. Kate, I bet many people are kind of curious about what are some of the good first options. So if there are are some of our listeners that they know their material has been leaked online and they want to kind of take action, what would be the good first step? The first thing I would would recommend for people 
is to find a supportive community. Now, it may be your friends and family, but they may also unwittingly throw judgments at you and they may intentionally have judgments for you. And there may be some victim blaming there. So if your immediate circles are not your safe place here, find other support groups, find a therapist who is trained to help you unpack the implications of image-based sexual abuse and get a community of people around you that can help validate your experience and help you walk through the decisions and the options that are available for you moving forward so that you can make the right decision for you. That may include making a police report. It may not. That decision is yours to make. So really, you know, surrounding yourself with someone who helps you find agency in this process is really important in my opinion. Next, I would say, take care of yourself because this can bring waves of traumatic response and dysregulation, and it can be really upending and scary. So slow down in life. If that helps you feel a little bit more regulated, maybe take some time off of work, have some extra time for self-care, and really stay connected to your own experience here because more, more than anything else, you will get the opportunity to redefine what your sexuality means to you and what your sense of sort of agency and autonomy in your own body mean to you. If you can really move through this experience in a way that's geared toward self-protection. I agree with you. And what a wonderful invitation for people to seek communities, because I think even in the cases of physical sexual assault, kind of like sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be very isolating when people decide to go to the authorities and go Mm -hmm. through the process. So I I like the idea of first establishing support and then uh, leaning into them if possible to help you navigate the system. Yes. I also would recommend people find Find an attorney who is well-versed and skilled in this area of the law because they may be able to assist in getting the images taken down and they may be able to assist in helping you find some sort of recourse if the criminal justice system is not available to you. I love that. I, I can talk to you about this for hours, but I noticed we're toward the end of our time. And okay. I love all the content that you put in out there and, oh, and on internet, your blogs, all of the wonderful work that you're doing. So if people are interested to get a hold of you, what are some of the places that they can find you? And I also hear that you have an exciting announcement. <laughs> I do. Yes. Thank you. So in May... I am dropping my own podcast called the Modern Intimacy Podcast. So starting at some point in May, people will be able to find that on all of the places where they get their podcasts. And otherwise they can find me, probably the best place would be my website, which is modernintimacy.com. And on Instagram at Dr. Kate Balistrary or at The Modern Intimacy. And I definitely invite people to check out those resources. Again, there are like lots of great content, the blog posts and information. Mm. So that would be a wonderful place for people to get some resources. Thank you so much, Dr. Kate, for coming on the show. I can't wait to check out your podcast. The link for all of the thank you mentioned will be on the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so lovely. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I learned a lot about the actions we can take if our images get leaked or we are victim of revenge porn. I know I had clients that their lives has been ruined because of that. 
So if uh, you experience something like this, I'm so sorry to hear about it. And I hope that if it feels right, you take action to reclaim your power, however that would look like. At the end, I wanted to ask you for a gift because as I said, it's my birthday. I know it's odd to ask for a gift, but I feel me and you have been in a relationship, I think right now for five years, and I consider it a long-term relationship. So if you are a listener of this show, if you're enjoying this show uh, for my birthday, I want you to take a minute and write a review for this show wherever you're listening to this show, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, if it's on Stitchers, CastBox, wherever you're listening to this show, I would really appreciate it if you write us a few words that helps us to reach a broader audience. And that would be the best gift for me. Thank you so much for tuning into our show and I'll talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.